Welcome to another episode of the Ninja Tune podcast. Uh, for this episode, I'm very pleased to be talking to Daedalus, who is fresh off the plane about all manner of things, but predominantly his new album, Bespoke. So thanks very much for joining me. It's a pleasure to meet you. Um, I understand that you grew up in LA. Do you feel that your geography had a lot to do with your early moves in music? Um, absolutely. Uh, it's really nice to be back here in London. It is the exact opposite from LA, I think as much as possible. Uh, we have sunshine and endless vistas of kind of space and desert and growing up in Los Angeles does affect a certain kind of worldview. There's a certain amount at your doorstep at any, at any moment that is quite uh, spoiling. You know, any day or night you can kind of catch whatever kind of media or art you want to see or do. Not to say that it's good and not to pass any judgments. It's just the kind of thing that's just present. And, and kind of being exposed to some of that, I think, affected some of the ways that the ease to which a lot of L.A. artists kind of dip into other genre, I think, has a lot to do with that side of Los Angeles. People don't always speak about that. You can go to a cinema and catch weird, you know, Kurosawa films at midnight. You know, that, that kind of thing on a day, day-to-day basis is... Is, is something special. Your first musical steps were in classical music. What was your route towards that? You know, there's, there's something fantastic about uh, public education where you might end up in places that you wouldn't normally tend towards. I, I wasn't a classical music buff, um, but I, I started kind of my musical training on double bass and bass clarinet are my kind of main instruments. And both those instruments aren't, you know, in the history of rock and roll, they don't figure too highly. Certainly, I could have tried to become a rockabilly kind of, you know, psychobilly kind of dude, but that, that wasn't really in the cards for me. <laughs> so, so when I was trying to learn these instruments, the, the music you learn, the, the kind of the, the canon is classical and sometimes jazz. And I kind of followed those, those, that exact path to kind of where I am in a, in a funny fashion. And public school is entirely the reason I exist as, as a musician is because they had these kind of vigorous programs for, for young musicians. I've heard that your earliest introduction to rave music and I suppose electronic and dance music came from an encounter you had with the Pirate Radio when you were staying in a YMCA in London. How long did it take for that musical awakening to take hold for you? The exact moment when rave really worked for me, it wasn't so much when I came here. I'd heard some rave music before in the States. I mean, it had been, been played on some radio, 
just limited amount of dance music that kind of had the vibe, but just they were playing tracks. To actually hear it in context, to hear someone yelling sometimes stupidly on top of it about whatever club night names of obviously that was London clubs at the time. And to hear it in, in that kind of context, it, it just made sense. It actually sung kind of, you know, in the mix and everything. So that that's that's when it resonated. So it really was right at that moment when I when it worked, basically. So um when you started to gain an interest in this new rave music that you were hearing and you had this new context, was it something that your previous classical training was complementary to? You know, it's funny because so much of rave is pulling from a, a polyamorous amount of sampling. It's just anything that seemed to be on people's turntables where it was fair game to be sampled. And you, everything from children's music to film soundtracks, hip-hop, like Cookie Crew and Ultramagnetic MCs, they all figure in very highly in this certain period of rave music. It was almost as if the technology that was being invented right at that moment was enabling people to sample more. And so they poured in just whatever was at hand into their songs, even when it didn't harmonically work or really make musical sense necessarily, but it was really exciting. And certainly some of the classical or jazz training that I had up to that point, which was minimal, I was quite young still, but you start to see chord changes happening more than like acid house and stuff doesn't really, it's very modal. It just happens to meander around in like a worm-like fashion around a single key. It doesn't really do very much necessarily. And suddenly you have these like really emotive John Barry strings and horns and different classical and, and film composers being utilized. The next step for you, where you were studying music at college, um, at what point did you decide to make the transition from, you know, student and DJ to a writer and performer? So yeah, the evolution for me was was kind of a brutal one because, as much as I love this music and it really sang to me something powerful and stuff, it just I had no idea how they made the tracks. There, I didn't have the kind of technical education to know what's how to work samplers or synthesizers or these kind of things. I mean, I, I had brushes with this kind of equipment, but it was all just a foreign alien language. And I'd been playing classical instruments, and I'd been playing double bass, and it seemed like the sensible thing to do to follow. I mean, this, the least sensible thing ever, but the sensible thing to do was to become a jazz musician because I played the instrument, and I knew the music to a degree, and, and it was a school that was close to home. And, you know, it's just all the silly things that... In hindsight, like, gosh, it's like being a jazz musician, it must be the hardest life. And it's such a, it's not a very vibrant music. It only really lives and breathes in places like New York, and maybe New Orleans and stuff. It's uh, elsewhere, it just, it's a museum piece. And so, anyways, the foolish, the foolish things we do. So I was studying it and it actually was because of the college radio. Um, there was a radio station on the campus of the university I was going to that broadcasting a lot of electronic music so I was able to indulge my electronic passions as a radio personality and then in classes learn you know, Eric Dolphy tunes and Mingus songs and stuff uh, learn charts and Latin jazz and all the silly stuff but but it was really this like 2 to 4 a.m. kind of slots of playing all the weird ninja stuff and warp stuff and and at that, at that point, my, my fascination with rave had evolved kind of through jungle into odd IDM and drill and bass and stuff. And so it was a lot of that kind of focus. And there was still a lot of musicality in their music, but slowly but surely, the, the kind of division, the kind of the, the mystery of it kind of eroded away. And you saw the genius of the production, but, but finally kind of seeing how they were doing it, what they were sampling from, what was the influences kind of throughout their musical history. And that something I really felt strongly as I was studying my own music theory and history. I, I began to see the relationships a little bit better and, and a little bit more confidence with DJing. Suddenly it becomes possible. It becomes, you know, from the absolutely absurd to maybe possible, I could kind of put my own two cents in on this conversation of music. When did you first start making your own stuff? You've got this understanding of how you do it, but what was your initial take on it? What was your two pence that you threw into the conversation? So the two pence at first was just terrible, terrible versions of the same tracks I was playing. You know, like the doing a Amen workout, just just trying to make a drum and bass kind of track, trying to make a, a weird beat track, trying to make a Tribe Called Quest, Jay Dilla beat, you know, in the late 90s. This was the kind of 
the basic education that I think I had to kind of go through and terrible experiments using samplers. At first, I was really anti-computer. I didn't know how the computer would, was going to factor into my, my, my production, so I was all hardware, costing me way too much money and, and really not getting the best of equipment and not getting the best sounds because of it, but still like getting these little, like, well, it, it doesn't sound quite right, but at the same time, what would they do? What, what would happen on the record? And, and so I went through a few years of just trying to imitate, trying to sound alike, and not being happy with my output, just trying to find an in. And it, it started to really click around the millennium, around 2000, where I started to actually feel some confidence with a, a voice, I guess, to a degree. And, and a part of that was rejecting my history, putting away all the jungle records, my thousands of jungle records that I just are now sitting there doing nothing and probably never will again. And I really love chord changes. I really love harmony. And I love I love a sad beauty, I guess, is a silly thing to say, but tragic things and emotional things and things like film soundtracks, basically. I just really want to make film soundtracks, but it's hard when you don't have pictures. So when you're kind of making your own imaginary version of that, what, what, what are you doing? Well, you're making stories, basically. And so I started to make stories. The very first track I was able to release on a compilation is called A Mash Note. And that starts with me typing a love letter to my then girlfriend, my now wife. And that's the kind of opening percussive sound that kind of goes throughout the track. And it's just, it is kind of a workout though. It just goes through all these little odd time signatures and a little melody that keeps on perverting on itself. But that's everything. I mean, that's all I've been doing is just, you know, taking a little melody and perverting it, perverting it, perverting it, and adding a little harmony. And it, it really is that, that one weird moment when you, you perceive yourself way. Uh, music is great because you can borrow into the future and the past and all that stuff. And I, I, I vaguely did on that track, and I'm still just making that track over and over again. So when you first hit on this idea, was that when you decided to be a musician full-time, or was that always the case? There was a period of time, before, like after I'd kind of given up on jazz, not given up, but like released that dream, knew, knew I never was going to be quite good enough. It's a wonderful thing to know you'll never be good enough at something, because it, it frees you. It was like the, the prison cage came open and I could just kind of embrace happiness. Super, you know, self-help book, stupid, but absolutely true. There was a period of time in between um, when I was trying to make, I had to make a living somehow, and, and I was doing music for commercials and television a little bit where I was doing sound-alikes. A lot of that time, this was the early aughts, this is the early 2000s or whatever, I was doing a lot of Fatboy Slim and Moby and Chemical Brothers sound-alike tracks. I never sold anything. I never did a terribly good job. Um, I, it, that music didn't come easily to me. Big Beat, or whatever you want to call it at the time, just didn't fall under my fingers terribly well. But it was, again, very educational, working with deadlines, working with very demanding people, crazy people. Almost all my label experience since has been working with some kind of crazy people, and so this, that early employment was very helpful in that, in that case. So at this point, were you already making stuff as Daedalus? When did you hit on the name and what's it mean to you? So yeah, Daedalus, I actually, there was a brief period of time when I was DJing on the radio on this college radio station, there was a moment of time, of course, you have to pick your alternate identity. You can't just be yourself. It's, it's one of those unspoken rules of the radio that you have to observe, you know, the transformation of a radio personality or whatever. Um, I almost was DJ Dead Kids. I was spinning a lot of break core as well as the drill and bass and IDM and Dead Kids seemed to have a je ne sais quoi to it or something but that wasn't going to suit it didn't really sum up me at all uh, but Daedalus was something that really had been rumbling around for me for a long time I I'm fascinated with this idea of invention and especially when you go back a bit you clear the slate, you get rid of preconceptions so going back to ancient Greek myth really opened it up it, it, people don't, I don't think people had an idea what that would sound like and that ties into my other interests in like Victoriana and, and that kind of stuff. There isn't 
these kind of solid recordings of that moment. So it's like you can sound like anything and, and you can borrow into these ideas, hopefully. And again, um, the tragedy issue too. I like things that are a bit sad and a bit threadbare and heart hard, I guess. And uh, Daedalus, of course, is quite a tragic Greek figure. So, I mean, he loses his son and kills his cousin over petty things. It, it's a, it fit. It's called Bespoke. And as a man who, obviously, you take quite a considered approach to your attire and such, does Bespoke describe the man you are or the musician that you are or the whole lot? No, um, I'm an addict for for a concept. I really should release this idea. It isn't very popular in, in modern music to have too much conceptual nature of things. I think people want their music to be somewhat easy. They just want it to be something to listen to on the tube or have it in the background of a commercial on the telly or something and they don't I don't think they want it to to say too much because they pour in the meaning and or the blog tells them what to think or wh- whatever it is whatever it is it's it's fine um, but I'm an addict for it and I, I like I like when things have a have a reason and and like you're alluding to bespoke in this case I, I really want it to mean everything it really means something made to measure or tailor-made or you know made without a pattern and I wanted this record to be like that, uh, the the record, and and hopefully, um, again, not to put too much importance into it, but hopefully, the career I've I've undergone thus far is kind of on that same path where it's like, I don't know how it's worked. It's been a lot of coincidence and chance, very happy happily, but really for no rhyme or reason. You know, the machinery I use was was almost. It wouldn't have been in my hands in any other situation if, if I hadn't have made certain choices or other choices hadn't been made for me. I wouldn't be using the monom. I wouldn't have worked with MF Doom or Prefuse 73 or Bus Driver. The, my whole whole life is based on these series of happy accidents. And so it feels like it hasn't been made from a pattern. It feels like everything that's happened thus far has been kind of without reason in that regard. And so the record is also supposed to be celebrating that same thing. It, it, it isn't a dubstepy record of now it's not a post dubstep record of now i should say actually because who knows what what new millennium we're now bravely moving towards of purple purple genre-ness um but it, it it just it it has its own warp and weave and stuff and uh yeah it's it's kind of it feels a little dangerous like that it feels a little scary like kind of you know tightrope walking without a net kind of thing and uh, I hope people take it kindly, uh, take to the record kindly. But yeah, the, the concept sings through. So you made the album with a concept, but the concept was kind of not to have a pattern. So how did you tackle it to have that concept, but the lack of pattern? Did you approach the album as a whole? Was it song by song? And, and saying that it doesn't have a pattern is, is of course, is of course a bit of a, of, of a lie because there was definitely uh, a, a distinct idea involved. And part of that idea was the fact that I'm on the Ninja Tune label. Ninja Tune has a vibe, and, a, and a, as much as uh, I'm in America, maybe kind of distant from the London office, I'm not immune to that kind of stuff and I was very much listening to these kind of concepts that they were putting forward and stuff and they wanted songs they, you know 
some sing-along stuff and whatnot. And so I gave him my weird version of some of that at times. And uh, I wanted the record to be vocal, but no rapping, for instance. I've done a lot of, of rap in my career, and I just wanted to take a little break, a little breath from that, maybe to come back to it renewed soon with some other new MCs. But for now, just taking a look at the vocal aspect and, and not letting the vocal override the song, but to let it be really part, another instrument in the, in the music. But words are, are really important and powerful, and, and the record contains a lot of that. But if you listen to it carefully, like it's hard to understand, for instance, this track, Overwhelmed with Bilal. You don't really know what he's saying at any point. I mean, there's some words that come through every once in a while, but it, it's really about the fact that it's it's a it's a kind of a, a meaning it's a vibe more than more than it's like hey these are the words and i don't know i think there's some buried treasure in that if people really want to make up their own like what is exactly his bus driver saying on, on his track though well, he's saying some weird stuff but you know that's part of it his whole thing and part of the record as well what can you do what can you do mentioned that you treated like the, the vocals as another instrument on this album and you used a variety of different vocalists and collaborated with a lot of people so did you have them in mind before you started or did you sort of write the rest of it and then think which vocal instrument would sound good over the top of this there was a mix of course i mean like uh, there were some people i was shooting for from the very beginning anara george being one of the key ones who was thankfully early on the record and just an incredible vocalist uh the bird and the bee is a group that maybe people should know about here in the UK. Maybe some people do, some people don't. They're more indie, but they do electronic music as well. And she's just this amazing vocalist who actually comes from an amazing musical lineage. I, I really wanted to show that aspect of LA as well. You know, not just the beat scene and, and, and these kind of things that are becoming well known, but there's this other, other kind of scene happening. So I was shooting for her, but someone like Bilal was a last minute thing that worked out really quite well, I feel like. And uh, so it's a mix of things on the record, but it was really looking for the right sound for each track. sort of saying uh, just now about the LA scene and a lot of these artists being part of that do you consider yourself part of the LA scene still and is this album for you an LA album despite the pressures of Ninja Tune way off in London absolutely yeah you can't escape yourself and I'm so inspired by a lot of these new voices coming out of the the scene just coming up from the just from all over I mean LA is a huge city and the population is diverse but man some of the sounds that are coming out you would think that they would all have been conspiring together for a long time because of how it actually works as like a texture like a tapestry and now that there's some strong outlets for that sound you have Brain Feeder being uh, such a label that can feature people from LA and people from outside of LA but it feels like god it's it's hard to describe but if you listen to like say the new Austin Peralta record which is a jazz record but it's LA it's like it's you you listen on the freeway and it's like oh this is it just like I feel like um, that burial record that came out some time ago was really a London record right untrue it's supposed to be like a London record and as much as I enjoy that record I don't feel like I really get it because of that and I don't feel like Austin Peralta's record is limited to geography but at the same time a lot of these records I think sing in the place I don't know if I 
my records are totally doing that. I don't know if it really is LA so much, but I know it's influenced by the place. And I know it's influenced by the people. So in that regard, it's definitely from, from LA and from that place. It's traditional when we have people in for the podcast to have a chat about uh, a few tracks of their choosing that have influenced them in some way. And um, you've picked us a few. So your first pick is, is it Aeson? And it's Trip to the Moon Part 1. Do you want to talk a little bit about that before we play a bit of it? This is the most important track for me. This is the one that really is the kind of breakbeats and film soundtracks and all mixed with weird synths and sounds and sped up female vocals that was rave when I was a kid. This was the track that I picked up just because I liked the artwork, basically. I liked this picture of a moon and the vinyl jacket and stuff and put it on and just took me away to a place I didn't understand. And and it was my life for years. It still is. It's still, I think in many ways, it's the... When I make music, I just want it to sound as as monumental as that track sounded to me when I was a kid. It's funny looking back and trying to listen with pure ears at this music. It's it's period. It's from a moment, but that moment is still so strong. And it, it, every so often, there's another set of producers like Scream or, or Zombie, these people that directly reference this this moment, that track, basically. And it's it's that kind of strength that keeps keeps people cycling through it. Okay, well, let's hear some of that now. This is Aeson with uh, Trip to the Moon, part one. Aeson Trip to the Moon Part 1 which was the first of Daedalus's choices for the Ninja Tune podcast your second is significantly different from that it's uh, it's the Pixies your second choice uh, the track is Alec Eiffel and uh, what's what's it about that one that makes you want to draw attention to it here there's a very uh, a, a really wonderful lesson I learned from that that particular album Trumple Monde um, being the record and Alec Eiffel being the track when I first heard the Pixies, I hated them. They were very jangly, and there was a lot of LA references. So it's like it—it it deserved attention. It was one of those things that was running rampant around some of the friends I had. People loved it, and I just—I couldn't get into it. I couldn't get my ears around it. But I liked this girl, and she really liked the music. And so it made me listen to it just a little bit more, and I started to see something far beyond my expectation. And Alec Eiffel, for instance. It's this weird synergy of like, what are they talking about? What are they? It's all this weird French stuff going on, and, and they're talking about inventors. And I like inventors, but why are they? Why you know? Why are they? Why, where are all these synths coming from at the end of the track? I like this electronic music, but why are they using synths? I mean, I, I thought I, I thought I understood where those synths belonged, and they're they're utilizing them. You know, they're experimenting with all the sound, and it sounds so. Wait a second, it sounds really good. And I really like this girl, and I ended up marrying her, so it, it became really important to me. Uh, my Laura Darlington is is and was a huge Pixies fan and, and it taught me an important lesson basically about giving music time to breathe and trying to see really where it's coming from and, and see it for what it is and and some things do take time we don't afford much time for music nowadays but maybe if people listen to this track right now if you're not familiar with it just give it a second give it a moment let it go through all of itself it's kind of a little bit of a long track so just let it go through everything and then Maybe it'll reveal itself. Here comes Alec Eiffel by the Pixies.
Pixies with Alec Eiffel. Um, so your next choice is George Clinton, mm-hmm. Atomic Dog. I've heard a rumour somewhere that your next door neighbour managed Funkadelic at some point. Is this accurate or is it completely spurious? It's actually the next door neighbor's brother, right? That's That was the story that was fed to me. Um, I don't know the exact relationship that this person had. I don't know if it was a manager or something else, maybe less wholesome dealing with them. I got a chance to meet the Parliament uh, band and George Clinton when I was a kid, about five years old or whatever. And I had I have all their records from this age from when I was this this young I have every parliament record every George Clinton record at the time I had no idea there was drug references no idea there was sex references and if you look at the cover it's sex and drugs and like you know it's they don't they don't hide things but young young minds tend to see if they want to see basically and uh Atomic Dog is a track it's like it's the most fantastic mix of sounds it's crazy the production that they got to was so ahead of its time in the 70s and 80s this is one of those things that just pure sound goodness. And as a five-year-old, it was especially good. And it still proves itself to be like worthy of actually still being spun. There's very few tracks that seem to, you know, make the test of time, especially from the 80s. A lot of the 80s come, you know, really downhill for a lot of artists. But George Clinton, whatever that cocktail he was on or still is on, makes for good music. Yeah, this is a story of famous dog. But the dog that chases its tail will be busy. Rhythmic dog, harmonic dog, house dog, street dog, dogs of the world unite, dancing dogs. Yeah, kind dog, funky dogs, nasty dogs. George Clinton with Atomic Dog there. And your next choice is a Ninja Tune release. It's uh, from Funky Porcini, and this is the track Carex. Is Funky one of your favourite ninja artists then? You know, I, I can't say it was. it's a favourite uh, artist. Uh, I, I, he only had like three or four records right on Ninja, or maybe, maybe even only two records and like a few singles or something. It, it's one of those odd things. I picked this track mostly because Ninja Tune in the mid-90s, late-90s, in America was this powerhouse of electronic, but it really was Ninja Tune more than any of the individual artists, at least from an outsider perspective. I was working at a radio station, we would get serviced Ninja Tune product and stuff, Ninja Tune CDs and vinyl and stuff, and it was it was always like every record was seemingly like different from the last, but it always had this like ninja on it. It always had that thing that that made Ninja Tune different than a lot of other labels because it, it had a personality. It really had like a ninjiness. And that record, I, I was already encountering a lot of drill and bass and kind of up-tempo breaks and stuff. And, and suddenly this artist, Funky Puccini, what does that even mean? And wait a second, it's all that kind of music. It really sang and it really was jazzy. So taking, like it was it's as if you have this old friend that you never met before come into your life. You know, all these things that I'd been drawing from, all this jazz and electronic music, and they're doing it. They're just, it's there. It's just happening. And it's different. Like, you have artists like Square Pusher, who's really Jaco Pistorius, very influenced, like very bassy and moving around. And I was always a double bass player. I was never into the florid, really 70s fusion stuff. I was into, quote-unquote, real jazz, bop and post-bop. So Funky Puccini was kind of pulling from sources that was much more akin to my spirit and therefore it drew me into ninja basically that was my gateway drug into ninja for all intents and purposes i mean certainly i was familiar with cold cut and i was familiar with other things but that was the that was the weed that got me into harder stuff basically (laughs) 
That was Car Rex from Funky Fortini as picked by Daedalus for the Ninja Tune podcast. And your final choice is Mad Villain Accordion. This is a record I imagine you hopefully will have quite a bit to say about. You're involved with this, right? Yeah, this this one's a bit personal. I I, I couldn't let it escape. I mean, let's let's look at it. 90s hip hop, basically. There was a, a wonderful moment where basically the underground became overground in the early 90s. You have a lot of LA becoming signed. Uh, AC Alone famously had his record Balls Don't Bounce. Basically coming out on a major, you had a lot of the Native Tongues crew out of out of New York and out of the East Coast getting signed to, to major record labels. And okay, so you have this huge moment in time when people like MF Doom, underground, weird rappers, this is before he was MF Doom, of course, but people being brought up into the surface, basically becoming known and being played on major radio outlets. So this weird Native Tongues rapping, right? The groups like A Tribe Called Quest becoming huge successes. Years later, it's all died down. All the major labels have dropped all sample-based music. They, they can't afford to have sample-based records. And yet you still have your oddities. You have people like Madlib who still carry this flame of samples and what it means, basically, when you borrow from the past and you make something, a, a synthesis out of it, you make something new out of it. It's powerful. And then you have cohorts like Jay Dilla and all this stuff. And, and uh, I had had some working relationship with Madlib basically through my very first record invention, my very first kind of official record invention, had a remix kind of accompaniment record called The Quiet Party and he remixes a song and this is maybe giving something too much away, but I paid him in weed and you can actually hear him smoking the weed on the beginning of the track of the he remixed, it's crazy. I didn't realize at the time though, he actually remixed, I guess, the entire record in part. He just maybe he didn't know what song he was supposed to remix, so he just kind of started to take chunks and elements. But he ended up taking a bit of my song "Experience," and he remixed it into some odd beat that just became one of his thousands of beats he has on tapes. I guess Mad Villain, if you if you're not familiar, those of you who are listening out there, is is Madlib and MF Doom doing a collaborative record. MF Doom being the most villainous, crazy, really really amazing metaphoric rapper. He he tells stories. He's just there's a lot of things that tie him into a, lar- a larger tradition of that exact moment of telling these kind of stories, but he really took it to an arch level, to a villainous level. Amazing. Madla being the, the kind of Quasimodo, this kind of blunted mastermind. Anyway, so Mad Villain, though, got leaked. Mad Villainy as a record got leaked before it was released. And they basically had to go back to the drawing board and make new tracks. So from what I understand, the history that's been brought to me, basically, is that Accordion wasn't on the original record. Accordion, the demos that got leaked, basically, were almost a complete collection, but leaked way too early for it to to be done. But at the same time, people had a love and hate relationship. It was too unpolished, too rough, and they needed to add more tracks, basically. They were afraid that maybe the leak would be the, you know, if they released that, that wouldn't be appropriate. So Accordion got made at that moment. I don't know... If, if MF Doom picked the beat out of Madlib's huge collection of kind of unused kind of things sitting around, or if somebody else was in the mix making that happen, but of course word got to me being in the LA community of things that Madlib took one of my weird songs and, and had a beat on his new record or something, and, and MF Doom was rapping on it or something, and it ended up being I was the only credited sample on that record. So... Yeah, so it started this odd set of dominoes, basically, where I'm part of this record and I go on tour with them for two shows, and I got a chance to tour with Jay Dilla before he passed, and a chance to kind of enter into that world for just a moment, just enough to work with MF Doom later and to kind of see his oddness, to meet him in person without the mask, and kind of get to know Madlib just that little bit. Madlib on the road is very different than Madlib at home, so I really am happy to have seen that and to have met JD and kind of share with him some odd musical memories that I have of him. Um, I really feel privileged to have that moment. And yet at the same time, you know, it's just because of a happy accident. Paying someone with weed, apparently, it's, it's not, a bad, not a bad way to go sometimes. 
Living off borrowed time, the clock ticks faster. That'll be the hour they knock the slick blaster. Dick dastardly and muttly with sick laughter. A gunfight and they come to cut the mix master. ICE cold, nice to be old. Y2G Steve twice to threefold. He sold scrolls, low and behold. Know who's the illest ever, like the greatest story told. Keep your glory gold and glitter. For half, half of his niggas will take him out the picture. The other half is rich and it don't mean shit to. Feeling a mixture between both with a twist of liquor chasing with more beer. Tasting like truth for dear when he at the mic. It's like the place get like, oh yeah. It's like they know what's about to happen. Just keep your eye out like I, I capping. Is he still a fly guy clapping if nobody ain't hear it? And can they testify from in the spirit? And living the true gods Giving y'all nothing but the lick like two broads Got more lyrics in the church, got ooh lords And he hold the mic in your attention like two swords Or either one with two blades on it Hey you, don't touch the mic like it's AIDS on it Yeah, It's like the end to the means Fuck type of message that sends to the fiends That's why he bring his own needles And get more cheese than Doritos, Cheetos or Fritos Slip like Freudian Your first and last step to playing yourself like accordion that was Accordion by Mad Villain from the incredible Mad Villainy album. If you've never heard it, you must get it into your life. Um, but final thing, and I, I assume that we've had many already from what you've been saying, but I always like to get something exclusive out of our guests. Is there anything that nobody knows about Daedalus that you'd be willing to share with us? I have an embarrassing story that relates to this raveness that we're talking about. I don't think I've told this story very much because it is embarrassing. I underline the embarrassing part one again, once again. Um, before I knew what I was doing and before it was spelled out, LA has a wonderful rave scene, an underground scene that goes way back. And one of my very first events that I did in LA, I, I had been seeing flyers from, from the UK. I had this brush with UK rave in the appropriate format, but only through the radio. I hadn't gone to any events when I was in, a, in, in London. I, I just didn't know what I was doing. You know, it would have been way intimidating as like a, what is it, 14, 13 year old or something. Inappropriate, too young. But um, coming back to LA, starting to get involved in the scene, I was wearing a yellow rain slicker to an event because I just remember these bright colors from the raves and stuff and I just wanted to participate. I didn't know how to dance to this kind of music. People seemed to kind of run around wildly. And I ended up dancing all night to tracks like Didgeridoo by AFX Twin. That was my first time hearing that track at this particular rave. And things things of that ilk, that kind of moment in rave. And my arms were up next to my sides and totally free of any substances. I never really have been one for substances and raves. It seems like a vastly inappropriate place to be really doing things. Anyways, that's just me. No, one thing about rain slickers, they don't breathe. They don't... Yeah, they, they get really sweaty easily. So I'm dancing and, you know, talking to people and stuff. And at the end of the night, I, I release my arms down. You know, it's like, oh, finally, like, you know, leaving the place. And what comes forth from my elbows, basically, is such a gallon of, of sweat. And I'm so embarrassed because, of course, I don't realize, just so overwhelmed with the music, I don't realize the state I'm in, I'm completely soaked underneath, and now the inside of my rain slicker is so incredibly uncomfortable, so swampish, and so, it, it, it's hard to describe, I want to get out of this thing so badly at this point, and yet, the fear, the, the few friends that I, I have, that they don't necessarily even enjoy this music, but I drag them along, this whole night of dancing, it's a tough situation. Yeah, it's tough. Years of awkwardness in my youth. There's reasons I dress up Victoria now, because it's off the map. You just clear the slate. Just get rid of the past. Yellow rain slickers be gone. That, that's, that's something a little exclusive, sadly, that maybe the world doesn't need to know. <laughs> so all that remains is for me to thank you, a thousand times thank you for joining me. It's been a pleasure to have a chat with you must listen to the new album bespoke it's uh, out on ninja tune in april and it's a corker so yeah i'm sure the audience will look forward to hearing it i already have i can vouch for the album so yeah go out and get it but yeah thank you very much for joining me thank you very much thanks So for the next part of the Ninja Tune podcast, as usual, we're going to be playing you a selection of some of our favourite things we've got coming out on the Ninja Tune family of labels. Uh, The first one that we're going to play to you this time is Sluggerbed with Moonbeam Rider. 
Moonbeam Rider by Sluggerbed, and that is coming out on Ninja Tune. Up next, we've got Eskmo with We Got More. was Eskimo with We Got More. And up next we've got a track from Wiley and the track is called Numbers in Action. Esky boy, A-listed. To get it right, I know it's all about timing. I reinvent, I'm like a brand new signing. I talk about the little ladder we are climbing. Music ain't a thing because I know I put the time in. If it's an issue and you're gonna need tissue because your eyeballs are boring, you can stop whining, whinging, change what you're thinking. I'm all for putting the pen to the paper because I'm an all for. I'm never putting an act on. I've done this thing since Shaq at Saxon. And I'm still a fan of Michael Jackson. But now I want to see numbers in action. I want to see numbers in action. I want to see numbers in action. I I wanna see numbers in action. I wanna see numbers in action. I wanna see yo. Can you send me what I called for? I'd like green sticky, yeah, the one you might walk for. They say they don't like Wiley, talk more. Because I educate like a tutor. Musical, you see me group one, you're in group four. And you got the fever, the one you need soup for. These other spitters ain't hot, they are lukewarm. Have you ever seen a gram spirit in its true form? Help put a foot in a shoe, like a shoe horn. They tell me kick back a little, come too raw. I say the things on your mind and what your crew saw. I got the vision, I can open up a new door. And I'm one of the greatest. My sound's fresh like I'm one of the latest. I can move floors. Especially dark. That was Numbers in Action from Wiley, coming out soon on Big Dada. Up next is another one we're really excited about. It's Toddler T's Take It Back. Deep in 
that was Take It Back by Topperty. Up next, we've got another really interesting release. This is Grey Reverend with One by One. It's coming out on Motion Audio, this one, which is Cinematic Orchestra's label. Names called Saints are marching over Taking you wrong way home You can change your mind Investing in time Stop prophecy Pay is a long way down. One by one, days they are behind us. Side by side Together When we rise up That was Grey Reverend with One by One coming out soon, as I said, on Cinematic Orchestra's label, Motion Audio. And that was the last choice in this particular episode of the Ninja Tune podcast. All that remains is for me to thank you for sticking with me and also for obviously downloading and listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I'm incredibly grateful to Mr. Alfred Darlington, also known, of course, as Daedalus for staying and having a chat with us about the new record. And also, I'd like to thank DK for, again, doing a brilliant job of producing this podcast. I've been Dexter, as always. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.